9, 12, 10, 28, 2, 23. This is Deep State Radio, coming to you direct from our super-secret studio in the third sub-basement of the Ministry of SNARK in Washington, D.C., and from other undisclosed locations across America and around the world. Hello, and welcome to another episode of Deep State Radio. I am David Rothkopf, and I am your host, and I am at one of our many undisclosed locations at the moment. In Washington, D.C., we've got both Rosa Brooks of Georgetown University and Ed Luce of the Financial Times. In England, I think. I'm never <laughs> sure. <laughs> I am, in fact, in central London as we speak. Cool. Corey Shockey in, in, a, in a tube stop in central London. And in our guest today, uh, I think in Cambridge, Massachusetts, am I right? Correct. Is uh, Professor Stephen Walt of the Harvard Kennedy School, author of the fantastic new book, The Hell of Good Intentions, which looks at America's policy elites at a moment where America's policy elites are under some degree of scrutiny um, fortunately, uh, Steve, you know that when you come among all of us here at Deep State, we may deal with policy, but no one would call us elite. Um, uh, which is, which is, I, I would. Thank you. Thank and, you. And, and David, no one would say we have good intentions. We have sinister intentions as yeah. is widely known. Yeah. Okay. Well, again, the truth in advertising. So we're not elite and we have sinister intentions. Uh, uh, other than that, I thought it would be a great place to start for you to talk <laughs> a little bit, Steve, about why you wrote this book right now. Uh, uh, I okay. actually happy to happy to do it. I started the book back in 2013, actually, uh, after giving a talk at the State Department with the title, uh, What's Wrong with U.S. Foreign Policy? And I was really... Uh, trying to explore the question of why had all of the hopes and dreams of the 1990s, uh, the optimism of that period, not borne fruit. Uh, you know, if you recall how wonderful the world looked back then when democracy was spreading, we had pretty good relations with most of the other major powers. We were told we'd reached the end of history and that uh, American-style liberal democracy was going to take hold just about everywhere. If you look to where we are today and all that's happened in the intervening 25 years or so, uh, clearly something went wrong. And I argue in the book uh, that, you know, the United States is not solely responsible for all of the negative things that have happened, but our fingerprints are over a lot of it. Um, so I started working on this and uh, had a nice draft of the book already in October 2016. Uh, then we held a, an election uh, and I ended up having to spend another 18 months or so recasting it in light of Trump. Just one final thing. Trump, in fact, turns out to be bad for the world, bad for the country, but in some ways good for the book because he is in such a <laughs> case of my argument um, that there is a foreign policy elite. It's been running American foreign policy for uh, a long time, and its handling of foreign policy the last quarter century has been pretty bad. He ran against that in 2016, but I think is discovering that changing the course of American foreign policy is a lot harder than he thought. He can change the style, but changing the substance is much more difficult. If anybody can make foreign policy elites popular again, it's Donald Trump being against them. Uh, I think that may be true. 
So, guys, um, what, what's what's your reaction to the thesis of this? And do you have any questions for Steve? So, I have a question for Steve. I, I, the arc of the thesis, I think, is true. I, I like the way you and Patrick Porter both emphasize how broad the intellectual consensus is among the people who work on American foreign policy. And I think you're right that President Trump's visceral disbelief in the fundamental building blocks that those of us who, who constitute the foreign policy elites have long believed. I'm curious where you think he fits in the conversation about so-called realism. Um, because one of the things I noticed during the Obama administration was how many people who believed that American foreign policy should be unsentimental and should not overcommit to allies and you know some of the some of the building blocks of the realist perspective. Many of those people were very hesitant to suggest that President Obama actually um, you know, was carrying out in policy terms their their intellectual viewpoint. And I'm not, not, not trying to say that President Trump is carrying out your intellectual viewpoint, but I would like you to try and place him in the firmament of how realists think about foreign policy. Where does he fit there? Uh, well, one, uh, that's a great question. And it, it actually relates to both uh, Trump and Obama. So I'll, I'll try and deal with both. Uh, you know, I think the view that most of my friendly uh, realists would be is that he's the kind of guy who could give realism a bad name. Uh, <laughs> he's the kind of he's the kind of guy reality a bad name. Um, if only he believed in it. Um, in, in any case, no, he's got an extremely sort of crude, uh, you know, almost Neanderthal view of it. That yes, it's states, and states are competitive. Uh, and states are always trying to to do one another in in some fashion. And I suppose you could argue that that's consistent with, again, the sort of crudest version of realism. But he misses all of the important parts. For example, realists are not opposed to cooperation among countries and even long-term relations of cooperation when interests are aligned. Uh, if you're a realist and you think the world is a really dog-eat-dog -dog place, then having uh, allies that are useful to you uh, is something you'd want. Uh, Similarly, uh, institutions are, are seen by realists not as a threat to American autonomy, but rather as tools that powerful states can use to advance their goals in a, a variety of ways. And finally, when you sort of see then how he goes out and tries to uh, conduct foreign policy, it's not what a realist uh, would really call for. You know, if you really think China is the problem, and he does, and there I would agree with him, uh, you wouldn't uh, tear up the Trans-Pacific Partnership on your third day in office and do all sorts of things designed to uh, uh, annoy, anger, uh, upset allies in Asia and elsewhere if what you really want over time is some sustained cooperation with other countries. Um, similarly, if you're a good realist, I don't think you would have torn up the Iran nuclear deal uh, the way he did without having anything to replace it with. So again, I'm, I'm hoping that he's not seen uh, as much of a realist. Obama in a funny way, as I think instinctively, uh, more of a realist. The problem is he was about the only one in his entire administration, with the possible exception of Ben Rhodes, but I'm not even sure about that. Either is Ben Rhodes, I think. Uh, <laughs> uh, Ed, 
you know, um, the subtitle of Steve's book, America's Foreign Policy Elite and the Decline of U.S. Primacy, um, brings to mind a little bit your last book on on the decline of Western liberalism. And I'm just wondering to what extent you've thought about the connection or or perhaps the culpability of America's foreign policy elite and this decline of, of liberalism that you wrote about? Um, that That's a very good question. Uh, I, I mean, I think from the reviews I've read of Steve's book, and I, I do intend to read the whole thing, and also Steve's summary just now, um, I, I would cautiously share um, Steve's worldview that the, the, our foreign policy elites, and particularly, uh, uh, you know, uh, in terms of Western elites, the American and British ones, after the Cold War, sort of fell prey to a triumphalism um, that then turned the values sort of based nature of our foreign policy into a parody of itself and um, created a culture of um, conformity, um, of um, uh a punishment to those who strayed too far from the conformist line, which was essentially subscribing to the American exceptionalist view of the world. And I think the American exceptionalist view of the world is okay in moderation. Um, uh, but uh, when it becomes, um, uh, w when it becomes a mentality of we, we've got nothing to learn from any, anybody else, we don't really need to understand our allies or our, our adversaries or those in between. Um, we need them to understand what works, um, which is, you know, a, a, a caricature, but not a gross caricature of the kind of mentality we saw, saw emerging in the triumphalism uh, of the post-Cold War era, of, of the um, unipolar era of the 90s. Then, then I think it becomes profoundly counterproductive. It creates resentments. It leads to misreadings. It leads to um, foreign policy blunders, small and large. Uh, and I think that that has played a role, particularly in the way we've misread China this century. That has played a role in, I think, uh, accelerating uh, the a sort of degradation of our model, of our soft power, as something that others uh, strive to emulate and envy and, and think is um, is worth aspiring to. I think that's no longer nearly as true as it was, and that and that and that I would say was the case before Trump was elected. It's certainly a lot worse now, but it was the case before Trump was elected. But I also think it's um, it's helped accelerate the. Um, uh, the shift of relative power geopolitically for, from west to east, um, and which is hard power too. So, uh, I, broadly speaking, I would agree with Steve's um, thesis, and I think um, I think the decline of the West uh, and and the decline of America has been exacerbated. It would have been happening anyway, and in relative terms, but has been exacerbated and turned into something far worse by our own blunders. And those blunders are very much linked to a group think self-admiration um, in, in our foreign policy. If, if I could jump in there, that, that was very uh, lucid, Ed. 
Um, there's always been this sort of interesting tension between this idea of American exceptionalism, because certainly in the unipolar era, on the one hand, we saw ourselves as exceptional and the indispensable power, but we also saw ourselves as an irresistible model. Somehow we're very special, but the rest of the world is going to want to become like us, and that's going to be easy to do. I mean, there was this real sense that you could spread democracy into lots of other places uh, on the cheap. Uh, the way uh, George W. Bush thought it would be possible, and even, I think, the way Bill Clinton uh, thought it would be possible. Um, I think, you know, now we look back and it almost seems delusional that we could have transformed Iraq into a, a fully functioning liberal democracy or Afghanistan or any number of other candidates. But there was always this tension, which I think Ed, Ed referred to, in, in the American image of itself as special but on the other hand, the idea that we were also uh, an irresistible or a seductive uh, model. Um, he's absolutely right, of course. This had enormous consequences for us just in terms of sheer, the amount of money that was uh, squandered in, in various places. Uh, and I think finally, we just also forgot about uh, great power politics, that no matter how much we believed that what we were doing was not uh, hostile to others, was not directed at Russia, not directed at China, not directed at others. Uh, the point was not what we thought. The point was what they thought. And they saw this very revisionist strategy of ours, this effort to transform uh, the world in America's image, as very dangerous. And of course, they reacted accordingly in a variety of different places. So, Rosa, let me ask you a question. Um, everything that Steve has said thus far is compelling, as as have been the comments of both Corey and, and Ed. And so the only conclusion I can reach is that the American foreign policy elite has declined while we were the American foreign policy elite. I wonder how that makes you feel. <laughs> you think it was something I said? <laughs> uh, yeah, the minute they let me in the door, it all fell apart. Um, <laughs> well, I was, I was actually thinking as as I was listening to Steve um, and I was wondering several things which which I, I'm not sure they're actually right but but I'll tell you what I was the thoughts that were running through my head you know one was that part of our problem it strikes me has been a sort of profound failure of the imagination and I think that that has perhaps always been an American failing um, that we are unable to imagine uh, how we look and how the world looks through the eyes of others. Um, and in particular, I think we, we, we are consistently unable to uh, fully grasp that others are as care as much about their nations or their group, whatever their group may be, as we care about ours. Um, and so we consistently underestimate nationalism as a force in other countries, for instance, uh, whether that uh, as well as various forms of sort of subnational politics and tribalism, you know, you know, that whether it's whether it's Vietnam uh, in the late 1960s, early 1970s, or whether it's Afghanistan or Iraq uh, more recently, that we have a lot of trouble just sort of wrapping our minds around the idea that what is obvious and appealing and attractive to us isn't necessarily obvious and appealing and attractive to other people, and that things to, that to us seem, you know, bizarre and inexplicable, why would you want to do that, can in fact have powerful pull to other people who have grown up with a different set of assumptions. And and, and I, I wondered, 
you know, if, if that failure of imagination, that sort of fail, I mean, to some extent, it's a failure of empathy, but it's also a sort of intellectual failure, a failure to be able to even briefly sort of inhabit the world views of, of other people and peoples. Is that, is there any connection between that failure of imagination and our own internal politics? You know, because I would, and this, here's where I, I sort of think, well, maybe I'm just, this may not actually make any sense, but but I was thinking about debates about immigration and the ways in which we do and do not value diversity of experience and origins within our own country with and, and specifically within sort of the elite establishment of our own country, you know, that the the more the more we look like one another and the more we surround ourselves by people who look and sound like us, the the less we are forced in day-to-day life to exercise, you know, the, the empathy muscles uh, and the imagination muscles, and the more we just end up reinforcing each other and, and, and you know, being unable to just grasp that not everybody thinks the way we do. And you know, I, I think, certainly think it's it's accurate to say that the foreign policy establishment is extremely homogeneous. It's very white, uh, you know, upper middle class, largely male still, um, uh, getting getting somewhat less so, but it is still particularly at the top, uh, largely male. Um, you know, stems from the same you know fifty or so universities. Uh, uh, exists in a geographically very limited part of the world, um, you know, inside the Beltway plus a few other cities and universities. Um, and that, that can't be good. I, I, everything you said, you know, strikes me as absolutely true, but I, I find your notion that it stems from the same 50 universities to be. You want to say five. Five. Yeah. Yep. Yeah, it's not it's a little broader, but okay. All right. Let's yeah. say 15. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's not, it's not that many, but you know, you bring up an important question and I think it's obviously one you've grappled with throughout your career, Steve. And that is, did the American foreign policy elite have it right? You know, the, the, the sort of the general narrative is at the end of the second world war, the American foreign policy elite p- put the world back together work to establish a global order, work to institutionalize the rule of law worldwide, had some vision, sought to hand off to the next generation the world in better shape than it was. And it's the baby boom, you know, elites who sort of inherited the world after the Cold War, who haven't been able to figure out what to do. And it's their failings, our failings, um, that are um, responsible for this. Uh, so we had it right once, and we don't have it right now. But maybe, maybe I have it wrong. What's your view of that? Yeah, I, I think that you can actually make a pretty good case for that, but you have to add some some caveats onto it. I mean, I think that the uh, American foreign policy elite in the Cold War got most of the big things right. Uh, and in in a funny way, it performed best at the beginning and the end. So the Truman administration actually did a remarkable job in uncertain, unfamiliar circumstances of putting together many of the sinews that uh, uh, that formed the Western order and that uh, essentially conducted the Cold War. 
Um, and then there were some mistakes made along there, mostly in the developing world, of which Vietnam was the most obvious example. But again, we did get sort of the big things right, that the Soviet Union was the problem, that containment was the answer, um, that nailing down strong alliances in Europe and in Asia was the key to success. Um, and then at the end, I think the Bush administration uh, handling the breakup of the Soviet Union and the first Gulf War and the reunification of Germany, again, they didn't get everything right, but they got a lot of the big things right in the circumstances that were unfamiliar, uncertain uh, as well. Uh, since then, again, there are moments of um, success, but the record since then has really been quite uh, disheartening. And, and I think Rose's comment earlier got it exactly right. Uh, there's a subheading in the book, actually, of one of the sections, which is, uh, when you're strong, you don't have to be smart. Um, and I think that in some respects, it's not so much that baby boomers were idiots. It's rather that they were in a situation where the United States was so powerful, where we thought we could do anything. And if we got some things wrong, it really wouldn't be that bad, that you didn't have to be particularly intelligent. And you certainly, or careful, I guess is a better word, and you certainly didn't have to spend a whole lot of time empathizing with others trying to understand their point of view, acknowledging that they might have a legitimate opinion or two. And this is why in this whole period, we tended to rely very much on coercion more than on diplomacy. Uh, to a first approximation, our foreign policy has been to figure out what we wanted other countries to do, tell them to do it, and if they didn't, then start ramping up the pressure. Um, and that's not diplomacy. Diplomacy is about reaching compromises. It's about empathy. It's about figuring out what we want and then figuring out how to make somebody else want enough of that to uh, to go along with it. We've done that occasionally, but that has not been our standard practice for a long time. And I think it's largely an artifact of this extraordinary position we were in for so long. Um, I, d I do want to note that you distanced yourself from baby boomers by saying they. Yeah, um, one of them. Yeah, and, and you, you and I are five months apart in age, so I think we have to own up. Um, Guilty as charged. Yeah. So, so, Corey, one of the areas where, you know, the hell of good intentions has been most uh, clearly on display throughout this entire period we've been talking about here is the, the Middle East. Um, and it's been a place where we've miscalculated, we've overreached, we've allied ourselves with the wrong people. Um, we've screwed up um, on almost every conceivable level. Um, and when we've gotten things right, we undid it as quickly as possible afterwards. Um, and I wonder to what extent you think that's a that region is a, is a good illustration of this thesis. Or is it perhaps an illustration of the fact that when the U.S. foreign policy elite was getting it right, it was dealing with simple, big issues. And when it started to come adrift, it was when it had to deal with every different corner of the world and every different set of problems. And it just could never have been up to that. Uh, so I am always on jihad against the notion that there was a mythical time when the world was simple and foreign policy issues weren't thorny and complicated and hard to figure out. And I feel like if there's any place in the world that's an illustration of that, it would be the Middle East. Uh, I'm super eager to read Steve's book, and I'm sure I'll learn a lot from it. 
When I look at the Middle East, I certainly agree that the hubris of, of American choices in the Middle East from the end of the 91 Gulf War, right? So that was the last time we were modest enough and circumspect enough to limit the ends we were trying to achieve and to fully resource those ends and to make a reasonable judgment about what it was in our capacity to achieve. And as Steve said, to actually try and persuade others and make compromises in order to attain those ends. I was uh, a coalition guy in Colin Powell's joint staff during the 1991 Gulf War. And we anguished about some of the trade-offs about putting that coalition together, but we understood the overarching political importance of people making meaningful contributions. And I saw none of that spirit of well, we're going to have to make trade-offs if we expect people to feel to join in what we're trying to achieve. And we even have to make substantial trade-offs. Leave Saddam Hussein in power um, in 1991. But we understood we couldn't hold the coalition together if we maximized America's aims. And do, working defense issues in the White House in 2003 there was none of that kind of spirit of, wow, we better be careful not to bite off more than we can chew, or, wow, we better make important compromises with people who are going to live there forever. Um, so I certainly agree that there were bad choices after 1991, after the end of the Cold War. I also agree with Steve that the first Bush administration, George H.W. Bush, was extraordinarily judicious about not overreaching at the end of the Cold War. But I do think the Eisenhower administration made bad choices in the Middle East. The Carter administration made bad choices in the Middle East. The Reagan administration made bad choices in the Middle East. I struggle to come up with an American president other than perhaps William Howard Taft, who did not make bad choices in the Middle East. Uh, How do you feel about Thomas Jefferson and the Barbary Pirates? I am pro Thomas Jefferson and the Barbary Pirates. Rosa, thank you for asking. You're welcome, Corey. I just wanted to make sure we didn't leave that out. He didn't try to do nation building. Yeah, exactly. Um, let, me, let me follow up with this with with Ed. You know, when you sort of break this down, just taking the Middle East and as, a, as an example, there are a few reasons we could come a cropper, right? One is we misread the situation. Um, in you know, sort of an intellectual or a policy uh, failure or an ideological failure with how do we approach foreign policy. Another is um, that we were co-opted for the wrong reasons. We were too caught up in oil or we were too caught up in, you know, different kinds of special interest politics or we were too caught up, as we've talked about in the last episode, uh, in the money of the region, you know, and money pouring in and influencing the foreign policy elite. Uh, and another is there were no right answers. The place is just in such tumult. You know, we we can't fix things that are that broke and we can't really influence things that have that many moving parts. And I'm just wondering, as you look at it, are you know, is it all of the above or is is does one of those things really leap out at you? Uh, no, I think uh, 
all all foreign regions of the world that, that are not our own are complicated and require a deep study um, before you know daring to tread. Uh, and I think the Middle East is particularly so. For for decades, we have therefore been particularly drawn like a moth to a flame to simple solutions, things that can just explain um, everything in, in one formula, you know, whether it's, um, you know, the exporting democracy um, via the Iraq invasion in 2003, that will fix everything, uh, or whether it's at the far sort of more simplistic end of the spectrum, uh, Jared Kushner thinking, ah, Middle East is solvable. I found a guy. He's roughly my age. Uh, he's inherited a lot of money, too. Um, you know, his dad helped him out. And he's just going to sort of help fix it for us. So this is this is the solution to the Middle East. Uh, the Crown Prince Mohammed bin Salman um, yep. is it, the the temptation to find to think that that. But because it's a complicated lock, you've just got to find the key um, uh, or the pick. Um, and and then and then you're through is even greater precisely because the Middle East um, is is so complicated. Uh, a, a corollary of that, which is not confined to Jared Kushner or, or, or Bolton um, or Trump, but which again they're worst exhibitors of, is the idea that Iran is the number one problem, um, and that essentially we we've got to back the 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 Saudi horse against the Shia the Shia devil. Um, and that 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 will be the, the sort of final battle that will break um, the the forces of terrorism and uh, and you know exporting instability around the region. It, you know, it's a complete. It's a very another very very dangerous siren song, um, which we're getting close to. I, mean, I suspect the Khashoggi. Um, um, the implications, uh, escalating implications of the Khashoggi murder might might sort of put a roadblock there. But ultimately, the sort of Bolton, Trump, Pompeo goal um, is is to force some kind of confrontation with Iran. Um, and again, it's for the same simplistic re- reasons of, of, of not understanding a region, um, of thinking you found, you know, the, the simple solution and thereby sort of heading blindly into a solution that is dramatically worse than the problem, potentially in this case, another war of choice that is completely unnecessary. Steve, do you have any reaction to that? I'm going to go to Rosa in a second, but I was just wondering what your thoughts were. Well, I think that, I mean, certainly Corey's right. We've made mistakes in the Middle East for a long time, but I would argue most of them were relatively uh, minor mistakes when you compare them to the ones uh, we've made uh, more recently. I mean, what Ed was just saying is exactly right. When you don't understand a region uh, particularly well, the last thing you would want to do is the kind of ambitious social engineering we've been trying to attempt there, where we're going to take governments out and then uh, provide them with some expert tutelage over how to create a different kind of government in societies we don't understand at all. This is immensely difficult. It's rife with unintended consequences. And the result is usually either a costly occupation or a failed state uh, or both. Uh, that's why you know people like me argue that our uh, policy 
policies in the Middle East should be first uh, and foremost maintaining a balance of power there so nobody dominates, uh, minimizing the American uh, military footprint there because that's a tremendous irritant and generates lots of uh, anti-Americanism. Um, and then going forward, uh, instead of having special relationships with a handful of Middle East countries and no relationship whatsoever uh, with some of the others, we should try to have normal relations with as many as possible, uh, because first of all, none of the countries in the Middle East deserve unconditional American support at this point. Saudi Arabia is uh, the latest to line up and demonstrate why that's the case. Um, and moreover, when American diplomats you know, show up in Riyadh, I would like the Saudis to know that their next stop is Tehran. And when they get to Tehran, I want the Iranians to know that their next stop is Tel Aviv, after which they're going to Ankara. All right, that's how you maximize American leverage, because you're giving all of those countries an incentive to start doing things that will make America happy, as opposed to taking American support for granted and engaging in reckless behavior because they're so confident they've got Uncle Sam in their pocket. Can, can I say something very quickly, just a quick sort of uh, add on to what Steve's just said? I, I forgot to mention that you know, the concept you, you, you're arguing for in your book and have just now of offshore balancing, if done well, is an extremely attractive one to simply prevent another power from dominating any of the other regions. And this is this is what Kissinger in his famous book diplomacy, you know, extolled about British foreign policy before Britain became extremely bad at it, um, you know, in the 18th, 19th century, is simply to back the underdog to prevent one power from dominating the continent. That, that is a realist strategy. Um, but all realism requires the, exactly the opposite of what Trump is. It requires detailed knowledge and empathy for the players with, whom, with which you're dealing. That's right. And, and discipline. And yes, and the first war, as Corey pointed out, the first Gulf War is a perfect illustration of offshore balancing. Iraq suddenly emerges as a, a serious uh, challenge by seizing Kuwait, and the United States organizes a coalition to reverse that, to disarm Iraq, and then is smart enough not to try and remake Iraqi society. Uh, Rosa, I, I wanted to turn to you on this because... What, what Steve was just laying out and, and Ed was emphasizing, and Corey did, um, was common sense. You know, and I think we have to talk them off the ledge. Common sense has no place in foreign policy. Um, <laughs> that, but, you know, it, uh, more seriously, one of the things that struck me while I was listening to Steve was there is a major power doing exactly what he's talking about. And that's China. China yeah. China. Chi I mean, the way China is handling the Middle East is you want to deal with us, deal with us. You want to do it, you know, for commercial reasons or you want to do it for some other reasons. That's fine. But we're not going to set preconditions and so, they're dealing with everybody. Yeah, I, but I I wanted to go back to a couple of the things that that uh, Steve and others have said, um, you know, the. I, I, you know, on the one hand, in many ways, my th my sympathies are with the realists, particularly, I, and I don't think they've always been with the realists. I think they have, over time, come to be with the realists, precisely as as you know, I I have seen uh, how often our our grandest ambitions have uh, led to results that are worse, not only for us but for for others as well. 
um, you know, that are, are grandiose efforts to remake uh, other people's societies for them and, and, and improve them uh, tend to backfire and, and cause an enormous amount of suffering for them as well as for us. But but partly because it, it I mean, here's the one area where I, where I am, well, question mark for Steve, I guess. I'm not sure I'm entirely in sympathy. Um, so yes, um, in hindsight, it was probably the absolute right move for George H.W. Bush to leave Saddam in place, creepy as he was. Um, and it was the absolute wrong move for George W. Bush to compound the initial error of invading Iraq for no good reason with the determination to entirely remake Iraqi society uh, through debathification and the ouster of Saddam Hussein um, uh, and a more a more modest approach, uh, even even if you except the initial era of the invasion, a more modest approach might have been more effective both for the U.S. and less devastating ultimately for the Iraqi population. But one, it strikes me that one thing that we did after the first Gulf War, which was not so cool um, in our effort to prevent any one regional power from gaining regional hegemony, was to you know actively work to keep the Iran-Iraq war going in a manner that would bankrupt and exhaust both of those players, keep them so busy fighting each other to the point of exhaustion that neither could cause too much trouble for us. And you know that was a devastating decision for the people of the region, right? And and so in a way, I'm just asking the same old question that that you know, everyone lobs at realists, which is, you know, wait a second, realist from whose perspective and what about human rights and what about, you know, what if what if our success comes at the very distinct expense of other populations? You know, how do we how do we make sense of that? You know, is this is this a sort of realist approach to achieving international security or is this just a realist approach to to uh carrying on U.S. Uh, prosperity and dominance for, for as long as possible. Because if it's the first, that maybe pushes us in a different direction than if it's the second. Um, we've, just got, we've just got about two, three minutes here, Steve. Okay. Um, well, I'll be very quick then. Uh, that's a great, uh, great question. And I, I would feel guilty, I guess, or feel uncomfortable if I thought I was being sort of a completely amoral, you know, it's only what's good for the United States and that's all that really matters. I mean, needless to say, I do think a, a more modest foreign policy would be much better for the United States, but I think the record of the past quarter century suggests it would also be better for many parts of the world where, again, with good intentions, we've, uh, we've caused a considerable amount of harm and haven't really uh, fessed up uh, to it. Um, there's also, it seems to me, a difference between what I believe we were doing during the Iran-Iraq war, which was basically making sure that nobody won, um, but we weren't necessarily the ones pouring the gasoline on it to keep it going. Uh, Iran and Iraq, uh, Iran in particular, really did not want to get out of that war until Khomeini finally realized that they just couldn't win and they had to do it. Um, that's, uh, it seems to me, what we should have then continued, namely let these two countries that don't seem to like each other very much continue to check each other rather than what we did in the Clinton administration, which was to uh, institute dual containment and say, we, the United States, will actually contain both of them simultaneously, which led to a whole series of other problems. Uh, last point, uh, I make it clear in the book, 
uh, we should be open to uh, using our power uh, in humanitarian cases to prevent genocides, to prevent mass killings. But I set the bar pretty high there. Uh, that it has to be a situation where we really think there's a danger, there's something we can do about it, and very importantly, we're not going to make things worse. Folks uh, out there in deep state radio land, uh, you listen to these episodes. This is about our 140th episode, and I know you've heard them all. And when you hear everybody uh, in our group as engaged in a subject as they just have been, uh, you know that it's an important and timely subject. Uh, and that's why Steve's book, The Hell of Good Intentions, America's Foreign Policy Elite and the Decline of U.S. Primacy, is so timely. And why, of all the audiences in the world I can possibly imagine uh, for this book, outside of Steve's own students who are undoubtedly obligated to buy it, um, uh, and his family, presumably <laughs> family. Um, it's sweet you think students buy books, David. Yeah, no, well, it's, uh, well... That's a good point, actually. I haven't been teaching a class for a year, so I've forgotten some of that. But I think for those of you out there listening to this podcast, this is exactly the kind of book that you want to read and maybe the kind of book that the Deep State uh, Radio Book Club wants to go and, and follow in one of its future editions. Uh, We're going to have this same uh, great gang of people back for the next episode to talk about what's going on in the world uh, the Khashoggi thing and the INF and 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 a whole host of other recent developments. Uh, so please join us again uh, in a couple of days for that, unless you're a Deep State Radio Network member, in which case you can join us right now for that because you get all the podcasts uh, uh, together. Uh, we hope you'll join uh, because one of the things that allows us to do what we do here at Deep State Radio Network uh, is, uh, is 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 your memberships, uh, and that allows us to be ad-free and to be independent. So sign up and, uh, and, and join us for this and all the other new content we've got. And in the meantime, thank you, Steve. Thank you, Corey. Thank you, Ed. Thank you, Rosa. Thank you, everybody. And join us again on the next Deep State Radio. Deep State Radio is a production of the Deep State Radio Network, a division of TRG Interactive Media. Our podcast today was produced in cooperation with Goat Rodeo Productions and was supervised by Ian Enright. Join us again for another episode of Deep State Radio. If you don't, we know where to find you.